Welcome back to Night Cheese. This is Steven. And I'm Tim. And uh, we want to welcome you back to uh, another show. We're joined again by uh, growing more and more frequently by the week. Uh, <laughs> guest host, uh, Jared. Jared, welcome back. Thanks. Thanks again. And yeah, glad to have you. And we are uh, venturing into the month of October now. Uh, thank you guys for sitting with us through our Christopher Nolan experiment and our uh leftovers retrospective uh this month in october we are going to be uh interacting with you guys our listeners and some of the various nominations you've made over the past month for horror films so uh tonight we are uh doing an interesting thing so this film wasn't particularly well i mean jared kind of brought it up himself so um you know he's got a little bit of an inside track of being a guest star of ours but um we're exploring kind of the idea of a film that seemed to really bother us all at a younger age. <laughs> and we're revisiting it tonight um, to see if that still holds up and uh, what, what does it look like now in this day and age. So uh, thank you for joining us for tonight's episode. We are uh, glee, uh, kind of... Cl- uh, uh. I've lost it. I've lost it already. Tonight's episode, we are uh, playfully titling Save Yourself from 1997, in which we are uh, reviewing the 1997 film Event Horizon. So uh, let's just dig right in. Um, I I don't have a particular format for how we're going to sort of dissect the uh, nature of the horror films, but uh, they they will change, obviously, from week to week. And the... uh, between the people who nominate them and, 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 and what we're doing. But tonight's Event Horizon, um, why, why don't we just go around first and just kind of share our stories about Event Horizon? Not so much about the film, but like, how did uh, how did you come to be familiar with that? You know, was it, uh, what's, what's your experience that kind of led you to sort of having a kind of, you know, at arm's length relationship with this film that, that brings it to where it is tonight? Anybody can go first. Take it away, Jared. Uh, sure. Um, <laughs> so, so to the best of my memory, trying to go all the way back to the year 1997, um, the, to the best of my memory, I saw this in the theater. Um, you know, I think I'd seen the previews for it, and I mean, I'm I'm a you know a huge sci-fi film fan. Anything in space, especially, always interests me. Um, not as big of a horror. Uh, fan that genre just doesn't especially if it's jump scares like i like some horror but if it's just cheap jump scares and that seemed to be what what a lot of the movies were at at that time especially um i don't really care for it but it was really kind of the space sci-fi element of of it that hooked me in and i like the story of uh the derelict ship you know uh in in whatever form you know that takes I like the story of the ship that, you know, there's there's no one on board. It's reappeared. What happened to the crew? Um, so to the best of my memory from 23 years ago, uh, that's kind of how I came upon Event Horizon and saw it in the theater when it released. Tim, what's your story? 
Yes, I have an interesting relationship with this film. I um, saw it with a friend, a friend of mine and I. We were probably either preteen or teenage, like 12, 13 years old. I was spending the night at his house. I don't know where his parents were, but we, like, I, I don't know how we got our hands on it, but it was, like, the first, like, rated, it was such a big deal, like, the first rated R movie. I think I might have seen it. And uh, the fact yes. that it was a horror film, too, like, we were so intrigued and Mm. i just remember it being i mean we watched the whole thing we didn't get scared enough to stop it but it was terrifying i mean it was yeah oh my goodness it was and so it's just kind of scarring not that i've been afraid to watch it since then but i just remember being like that you know that very first thing that you see that's kind of untouched you know rated r it's horror all these things that were like you just had no access to as a kid all of a sudden we could and oh man it it freaked me out <laughs> so you know i i didn't have as much of a so 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 uh let me just go ahead and rip the band-aid off real quick on this so that um tonight you know my most recent viewing was really my first experience watching it from beginning to end um i i'd seen picked up bits and pieces here and there um my high school job was in a local video store, um, which is kind of where my passion for doing things like this, you know, was born. Um, I remember it's funny. Um, you know, there are just hundreds of, you know, thousands maybe of titles that we had on the shelves. And, um, there was nothing particularly striking about the box art or anything, but I remember that as a new release when I was in high school, cause it would have been, it would have been coming out on video probably my senior year or something like that. And I remember it being kind of marginally popular with our customer base and stuff. Um, then fast forward to college and I can remember Jared, I'm not sure at what phase of college this became a popular topic, but, uh, Jared and I have a mutual friend from, from, uh, Tacoa, uh, Ford who, who really, I, as my memory serves me, uh, really pushed this as one of the scariest films that was ever made. And 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 I will say, I reached out to him this week before I watched it, and he uh, he humbly responded to me like, you know, I, I'm not sure if it's as good as I remember it. You know, at this point, he's like, it's been a long time, and he he confessed to being a big, uh, to use a wrestling phrase, a big mark for Sam Neill um of Jurassic Park ilk and and uh and the way he kind of chews the scenery in the film which we'll we'll get into I'm sure. Um so funnily enough um I remember having those seeds kind of planted and a few few ideas you know uh, of of interacting with it some uh before that but then I uh spent a semester abroad uh, over the summer in the UK, uh, as part of the broadcasting program with our, with our undergrad. And so, um, I was living alone in a flat on the company's property that I was working with. And it was a Saturday night and I was in like a foreign country all by myself. And you may not know this listeners, if you have not been exposed to this, but, but the standards and practices in the UK are much more, uh, lax, uh, about about thematic elements than they are in the U.S. No, and, that, can't, that that can't be right, Stephen. I I am told that uh, people will move to other countries that are more conservative if they don't like how things go. I, that can't be <laughs> Canada, the U.K. They they cannot be more liberal well, than the United States. I'm know, just going to go mean, ahead and shut that down right now. I'm just saying the U.K. <laughs> is. Uh, I mean, 
well, the UK doesn't exist anymore as we as we know it. So this is these are olden times, I suppose. Um, but, <laughs> well said. Um, nevertheless, the theater of the mind and and the whole uh, isolation I was experiencing at that time, I watched it for probably about fifteen minutes, and and I think that was my first exposure to realizing how broadcasting standards are different as well because you I don't know about you guys but you get accustomed to watching something like Die Hard or something like that on TBS and you're mm-hmm. you know you're going to get the yippee kaye Mr. Falcons and stuff like that and you just kind of know that <laughs> you can sort of be half invested in what's being mm-hmm. broadcast so so when you know you turn a corner and you see a complete you know you see the horror that's on display I'm like oh what what is happening <laughs> and um and you know the uh, the fragile the fragile personality that I still had at that point in my life, uh, I just, you know, it's like, nah, not tonight. Uh, I've got to find something else. So, uh, and, and also to be fair, I did not start the film and I do have a thing about joining a film I've never seen before halfway through. So, uh, that was my last personal interaction with event horizon until this week. And Oh boy, have I changed and how that film has stayed the same. Yeah. Um, so <laughs> here we are uh event horizon so uh and, and event if, horizon. And, yeah go ahead jared well i was just i was just gonna add to a couple of things yeah i you you mentioned that like with ford jogged two things in my memory yeah part of it was um for me like sam neil being in the film because we were i guess maybe four years removed from jurassic park i think jurassic park was 1993 yeah and i was a huge huge like when i was a kid like dinosaurs were my thing when i was a kid Mm -hmm. so i was a huge i I saw jurassic park who knows how many times in the theater so um so that was part of what drew me to it and uh and then yeah it was like i mean when i saw it so i would have been you know like 16 17 when i saw it and um and yeah and i remember uh i remember ford just like openly admitting that like it freaked him out so much that he actually went and like slept in the bed with his parents that night. <laughs> so he, oh, no. he, has openly, he has openly admitted that before and he's not <laughs> going to be listening to this anyway. So I'm no, just no, he, he doesn't listen that. to night cheese. It's fine. Uh, right. who does, who does? So, um, <laughs> we're just, to, uh, I apologize to the people who actually do. Sorry. Um, we, <laughs> yeah, it smart, is, um, smart yeah, okay. Yeah, right. Exactly. Uh, liberals. Um, so I'm kidding kidding all right so let, what let's let me get back on track here so um so yeah 97 uh you know you've got sam neil you got lawrence fishburne uh in it as well he's a couple of years away from picking up the role of morpheus in the matrix um so he's still kind of just lawrence fishburne at this point um he hasn't really jumped into his role um jason isaacs um who is for once not playing like a slimy villain um uh in 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 this role as well and then uh gosh there's somebody else i'm looking at the casting list go go ahead i was maybe let's jump in no i i I just i was gonna say like apart from lawrence fishburne and sam neill like there's multiple people that i'm like oh i recognize that guy but i i couldn't have told you his name or you know what else they'd been in but just multiple ones that i you know was familiar with so before I get to the next, um, <clears throat> before I get to the next cast member that I want to talk about, I just want to go ahead and dive in to the first theme here, which is 
the tropes of 90s films um this is such an incredibly 90s film um and and it and and it hits from like literally the opening note uh of, of the film um before i get into that i just want to say richard richard t jones he plays a character named cooper uh who's a rescue technician and um i don't know mr jones from any of his other roles uh, at least from from first glance now. But what I am going to say is that he plays the stereotypical black man in a 90s horror film, uh, which is his. Um, he, he is kind of the uh, um, lesser fleshed out uh, Samuel L. Jackson car- caricature, basically, before Samuel L. Jackson popularized it, which is just smart one-liners and casual f-bombs um and oh heck no i'm not gonna go into that room that that, that, you know that kind of mentality and um you'll find that in a dozen other horror films and and as soon as i saw that which is funny because i think because recently and, and i think i probably noticed that so much as recently i've also been watching a lot of um a lot of content made by jordan peele who who obviously puts a lot of effort and intellect into his characters and most of his casts are, are um, pretty well represented, re- represented in, in black community and black characters. So it was a little jarring to go back and see that guy, you know, um, as a part of the cast. Like uh, I even think of like the film, I can't believe we didn't put this on the, on the uh, menu, but uh, I think about deep blue sea and like mm. how LL Cool J's role in deep yes. blue sea. Like, you know the sort of just the the sassy black man who has ha, who's has one letters and makes jokes about the black man not surviving horror movies only right. for him to survive it and kind of thing um right. and so you know that was looked at as a subversion in the 90s because you know the black guy was getting killed uh all the time before then and then it kind of you know it's it's the snake eating its own tail kind of thing um so more 90s trips. So did you guys ever see the 90s, uh, the mid 90s uh, interpretation of uh, Lost in Space? Did you? Yes. Um, I don't remember it that mm. I don't remember that much of it, but I do. remember. Seeing so it. the girl from Party of Five was in it. Um, the younger Jennifer, girl, the one who was in, the one who was in. No, the little sister, the one who was in oh. Mean Girls, um, Lacey something. <laughs> anyway, she, she was in it. Joey from Friends was in it. Uh, Heather Graham was in it. And um, an actual serious actor was the father. I think it was William Hurt, maybe. Um, and anyway, I, I just bring that up because like that was another space film as well. And it has this soundtrack of like it's a mix between techno and grunge. You know, like it's this like grunge guitar, but it's like really frantic sounding like it's like it's um, like it's house music or something like that. But so it's just this weird assault on your eardrums. Um, and, and, and it's hard to uh, it's really hard to put into words. But like when you hear it, you're kind of like, oh, yeah, I feel like I'm watching a commercial for surge thing like it's it's just uh it's very just reminiscent of the time and so the score starts off like that (laughs) um very you know sort of um rock techno um um just uh shoot uh 
what was what was I going to say? Just instrumentation and um, the uh, and I and I shouldn't pick on this, but um, but I'm going to. So whatever is that um, the the C, the CGI. So this is at the beginning. Yep. You know, this is early on in CGI and film, so it's so it's so it's punching down a little bit. But you see this like initial shot, this like close up on this silhouette, which turns out to be this charred and scarred corpse that's screaming or something. And um, but as you go through that, you're seeing all this sort of space debris. Mm-hmm. And by twenty. 20 to 25 years after the fact that space debris looks like, you know, an, an older model of windows screensaver <laughs> like coming at you. And, uh, which again is not entirely a fair criticism because what else do they have to work with? But it's, Oh boy, does it not age? Well, I, I think even like, I don't know that you even really had to go that far past it for it to not age well, because like, I mean, you have some films like, I mean, Terminator two, is an exception, but you know, I mean, that was early nineties. Uh, yeah. and that CG holds up pretty well. Mm-hmm. Now, granted, yeah, granted it's, I think probably used more sparingly and in a way that like the metal, the liquid metal that, well, you know, like what does liquid metal really look like? You know, I mean, you know, like we have no real thing to compare it to, whereas we can kind of, you know, picture things floating through the air. Um, yeah. so yeah, the CG, like even I'd say, between five to 10 years later already looked pretty bad. And then especially when you get like 23 years out from it, it really looks dated. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, this, this is going to sound, um, <laughs> this is going to sound kind of embarrassing. Um, but in the late nineties and early two thousands, when I was still sort of developing my, my deeper knowledge of film and directors and, you know, what, what really good movies are and, and what I, what I love and what I don't, I was trying to get acquainted with certain directors and stuff. So I was learning about really popular ones, you know, like your Scorsese's and, and Nolan was coming into his own at that point. And then, you know, you have your, your other popular guys. So this is film is directed by Paul W S Anderson, not to be um, confused with Wes Anderson, um, which for some reason in, in my mind, those um those two names kept getting conflated so oftentimes i would see like a film is coming out by wes anderson or or, or paul ws anderson and i'd be thinking like oh okay well you know then this will be quirky but but it might be good you know (laughs) only to (laughs) only to find out oh this is not like the royal tenenbaums (laughs) this is going to be like resident evil um you know or something so so Paul W.S. Anderson, uh, just to give you some ideas, um, his first, well, it's not his, his directorial debut was a, a very lesser known film called Shopping. Um, but his big uh, commercial success, which there is room for praise here, not a ton, but there is, and we'll get into that, is uh, the film adaptation of Mortal Kombat. So... Uh, Paul W.S. Anderson directed the first Mortal Kombat film. <laughs> I'm a big which, fan listen, of that one. Yeah, which I was about to say, say what you will about it, but in the video game, uh, mm, game to yeah. film adaptation genre, that is still regarded as one of the best video game to film. Uh, it's it's a very low bar to clear, but uh, <laughs> one one of the best 
um, adaptations that, that there is. And it's certainly the best Mortal Kombat film as well. Um, yeah. So, Which he fun... actually, he turned down uh, Annihilation in order to yes. make Event Horizon. <laughs> he turned he turned down two films oh, whoa. to, to uh, do Event Horizon. So think about the timeline we're in right now, okay? I just want to, but before we do that, I want to list off some of uh, Paul W.S. Anderson's other films just so we get an idea what his entire body of work is like, okay? Um, so there's Mortal Kombat, the first one. There's Event Horizon, which we'll be talking about tonight. Uh, the 98 film Soldier with Kurt Russell. I don't know if either of you guys saw that. Um, it was it, it was probably the like the epitome of a decent video rental movie. Like it, it would be now it would be a movie you might find on Prime or Netflix and be bored one night. Be like, you know what? That wasn't bad mm. since I didn't have to pay for it. Um, the Resident Evil films. Um, the res the alien versus predator film, mm. um, the dead or alive DO DOA film. Let's see. So a lot of video game adaptations for him. Mostly, mostly that, um, he also did a, a, uh, three musketeers adaptation in 2011, um, with, uh, let's see, oh, Orlando Bloom was in that, huh? And Christoph Waltz. Wow, this is actually quite an interesting cast. I hope to go back and look at that sometime. Um, I'm not going to get my hopes up, though, looking at the rest of this stuff. So um, so that's his body of work, right? So he turns down Mortal Kombat Annihilation, as Tim uh, uh, pointed out. But he also was offered to direct the year 2000's X-Men film. Wow. And imagine X-Men in the hands of Paul W.S. Anderson instead of Brian Singer. Mm. And if X-Men bombs, do we get Spider-Man? Do we get do we get where we are today if oh, Paul wow. W.S. Anderson does X-Men? That's what I'm curious about, you know? Um, yeah. Um, do we really get the so bad, it's good, Mortal Kombat Annihilation as well? Uh, you know, because uh, Mortal Kombat Annihilation was terrible. Um, way, way worse than the first one. But, um, for anybody who, um, if I was not making sense of my, um, music descriptions there at the beginning of the film, just look no further than the Mortal Kombat, than the Mortal Kombat theme. Like that's, that's kind of exactly what I'm getting at. Um, the, the, uh, the sort of techno rock kind of sound. Um, Mortal Kombat. Anyway, <laughs> so. Um, so the uh, the score is actually done by Michael Kamen, who um, who who looks like he made a living off of like late '80s action films. Like he's he did the scores to uh, the Lethal Weapon series, to the to the Die Hard films, um, Roadhouse, the Patrick Swayze things. Now um, it sounds like I'm saying some of this tongue in cheek because he certainly seems to have a type, but there are two, there are three films. I actually do want to point out that, um, are surprisingly off brand for him that were really good films. Uh, the, the really good films and the score included one was a 1991's Robin hood, Prince of thieves. Hmm. Um, uh, the score in that film, I think was a, a big part of what made that good. Um, 
And then he also did the score for Mr. Holland's Opus in uh, 1995, the Richard Dreyfuss film about the, it's kind of like Forrest Gump, but about a music teacher, basically. Um, and then he uh, also, going back to our friend Christopher Nolan, uh, he, he helped with the score for Memento in the year 2000. So um, fun facts about Mr. Michael Kamen there. So anyway, um, let's, let's, let's go ahead and, and I have, I've prolonged it long enough. <laughs> um, so, so yeah, Event Horizon is the the story of this, yeah, like this uh, abandoned ship um, that this um, this this team of of uh, this rescue team of um, space explorers on a on a ship called the Lewis and Clark um, are going out to uh, retrieve uh, this ship that has been lost for a long time. Um, I did get get tickled uh, the opening text of the film is is doing one of those in the future this is what space looks like kind of things and the very first sentence was in the year 2015 i saw that yeah <laughs> we had our first colony on the moon and i was like uh, you guys are going to be a little disappointed yeah. um and so yeah it was uh that that was that was amusing um so let's see here um okay so anderson he um they uh, the, the 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 team they go out into space to try to find this the ship the event horizon which is has just reemerged it disappeared and everyone thought uh, everyone the ship was gone um, and it reemerges off the I said off the coast of Neptune but you know it's, it's <laughs> not, um, in, in that area around the orbit of Neptune so they go to find it and uh, and board it and try to uh, see you know what's going on. So uh, one thing in terms of mentioning uh, this in our discussion about Interstellar is this is one of the first films where they do the visual aid of talking about traveling through wormholes with a piece of paper, mm -hmm. uh, which is, you know, you draw your holes, your, your dots on the page and go from point A to point B and demonstrate it by folding the paper and pushing the pencil through it. And so... Um, so basically, you know, the horror elements of this film is they get to um, they get to the ship and discover that no one's there and they find a distress call. Well, before they get there, they they get when they're getting close enough to it, they hear a distress call uh, that is coming from the event horizon and they have some sort of life scanner. They can tell there is some sort of life on the ship, but they're not finding any people there. And then uh, the rest as they say is history like they get on the ship and then terrible things start to happen so um it is uh yeah it is interesting uh, i will say this you know for for all the um nitpicking i'm probably going to do tonight uh continue to do uh the, the setup and the premise conceptually is actually really intriguing i think mm -hmm. um you know it is used uh, they they you slowly learn that the the ship the event horizon is run on what did they call it like a gravity engine or something like that yeah gravity um, gravity drive or yeah. um yeah so you know the the genesis of the ship and its intent was to try to be able trap able to travel faster than light speed and they say oh well that's impossible and then they do the sort of they do the paper analogy um and basically <laughs> say you know their their gravity drive um basically has like a man-made black hole in this inside it right. and they and they use that to travel to any point in space and time so um yeah. so yeah you know it's it is sort of your classic 
it is sort of your um, classic story of uh, not unlike Jurassic Park, like uh, Jared mentioned with dinosaurs and stuff. The you know we got too busy asking if we should. We didn't bother asking if we could. We didn't bother to ask if we should. Right. Um, story and the um, and the, uh, the the creation tends to uh, outdo the creator uh, in this situation, and and it and havoc is wreaked upon. So, um, so let's just dive in now, uh, officially dive in, uh, and we can jump since, since, you know, <laughs> the ship jumps at different points in space and time. Why, why, <laughs> why, why can't we? So, uh, let, let's, let's go ahead and do that with, uh, this film. What, what, what are, what are some impressions or some takeaways you guys had some things you wanted to kind of bring up about with the film? Can I go first, Tim? Sure. Yeah. I, you know, for it being a horror film, I thought it was pretty successful in in the attempts to get the jump scares, the blood. Like, I feel like a lot of the elements for a horror movie were there, but the story that was being told, it all felt very kind of out of nowhere. Uh, it felt almost sometimes purposeless, um, and so that was one of my big problems. I feel like there are a lot of things that happened, but you didn't really know why. So, for instance, uh, Sam Neill's character. Um, he kind of jumps pretty quickly from let's figure yeah. out what's going on to this <laughs> ship is my home now. And there was just not a lot of in between of how he arrived at that conclude. You know, I, I feel like that was that yeah. way with a lot of the film where, um, and I, and I heard later on, I heard while, you know, or not heard, but while getting into this film, I, I did read that about 30 to 40 minutes of this film was cut. And mm-hmm. it, it makes a lot of sense because I feel like there's a lot of missing pieces <laughs> that maybe would have been made it a better film had it still been in there. Just a lot, a lot more backstory uh, because a lot of the scares were intended to be like dealing, like preying upon these characters fears. And sometimes they would be, you know, something would happen, but you don't know why, like what was the point of that thing happening to them? And I feel like I, I, I think had that extra time been in there, they left some of the story in there. We might've known that, but it, it felt very disjointed in the sense of, we don't know why these certain supernatural occurrences are happening. And um, it just feels, yeah, it feels very just disjointed. Yeah. Yeah. I, um, the first time through it's, it's funny to see the difference between <laughs> 1997 and now, because the first time through, it was one of the like freakiest yeah. things I had oh, ever right. seen. Um, and then going back this time to me, it's kind of like the first half of the movie I still like, um, mm-hmm. yeah. in spite of the CG problems and uh, just some of the different problems with it. The first half, I still like. There's a lot of um, potential in the mm-hmm. the setup, and then yeah. how they, you know, even how they execute um, the setup within the movie, and that seems to be like the the consensus all the way around with with you know um, people who've seen it, uh, reviewers, uh, just reading articles about it is that the premise, the setup is, is great. It's just, it was the execution. And so part of the problem was, um, it, it originally was not scheduled to come out at this time. Uh, a problem with another ship movie, uh, Titanic, Titanic was originally James Cameron's Titanic was originally supposed to get released in this slot. Um, it had to get pushed back because of its own production delays. So they had to, um, so they chose to bump up, event horizon so event horizon whereas it would have normally had 10 weeks to shoot had four weeks to shoot 
And so they were piecing the movie together while they were shooting, which all of this is just a recipe for disaster. It's, it's almost mm-hmm. surprising that it even turned out as good as what it did. Um, and then like Tim said, yeah, it was originally about two hours and 10 minutes. Um, mm-hmm. and they, they, they ran it with test audiences and it, it did not do well with the test audiences. Um, it was like they had, it, it was way, 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 way gorier, um, than even what made it on screen. Like what you see in the movie in terms of what happened to the previous crew, you just get these like kind of grainy, you know, snippets of video clips and mm-hmm. stuff like that. Apparently they really like delved into this and people were just mm-hmm. completely grossed out by it. Um, it might've played better, you know, now, uh, you know, after we've had, uh, you know, a decade plus of HBO and, mm-hmm. and, you know, the stuff Saw like and hostile franchises. And stuff, yeah. Yes. Right. <laughs> um, yeah. Basically so, Roth. <laughs> right. Yeah. So, so they cut down a lot of it. So they cut out the extra gore. They cut out the, um, like we mentioned, like the, the backstory parts, uh, because, uh, yeah, especially with Sam Neill's character like that, it, it takes a hard, hard turn, uh, with his character going from, you know, being like, you're kind of a little bit too creepy and a little bit too into the ship and not really engaged in what's going on to just full psycho. So, um, but, but there is, you know, context for, why there were some of those problems. And actually, I, one of the things I read, um, it, it was uh, one of the other um, supporting actors within the film talking about like all the problems that they had. Like there's, an, there's a scene where there's one of the explosions on the bridge and they said that they shot, <laughs> I don't know if he was exaggerating or what, um, I, or apparently maybe they just had like loose safety practices back in the, the 90s on films. But he said they shot this like three times and like the explosions were too strong. And like all three times they shot it, like he and Sam Neill, like both a few seconds later, woke up on the floor where they had literally gotten knocked out by the explosion multiple Eesh. times, multiple <laughs> times. So, um, yeah, it's really like the, the production of it was just a complete disaster of between trying to crunch it into that short of a time frame Mm -hmm. and just all the other stuff around it. So, uh, but yeah, I think, I think the first half of the film, the setup is pretty strong Yeah, and just what ends up getting delivered in the second half, or at least the last Mm -hmm. act of the film, um, ends up just not really delivering on the potential of the premise. Mm. Yeah. Well, this, uh, this is definitely one of Anderson's least, uh, uh, sort of universally least well-received films. Um, surprisingly enough with all the other stuff that he's done, um, the rotten tomato score on event horizon is 27%. Um, and it's got a 35 on Metacritic. Both of those are performing below average on Anderson's, uh, body of work. And I was happened to looking, uh, at the publication cinema score, uh, has also given scores to all his movies and his average rating with cinema score is a B, but he got a D plus on event horizon. 
Uh, I should also mention that the budget was $60 million and they only pulled in $26 million uh, in the U.S. Um, at the box office. Although I do think it did become something of a cult classic upon yeah. video release. Um, so there, there is that. Um, you know, that's uh, a couple of things about the film, and, and I don't know that I'll – and that that does provide a lot of context to some of the issues I had with it. Uh, one, we're talking about jump scares. So, you know, jump scares, actually, I don't mind so much. I kind of enjoy them when they're not overdone. Mm-hmm. Um, and part of the fun in a jump scare is the anticipation of, you know, the score – you know, creeping in and then it going quiet and trying to calm you down and then boom, the thing happens or whatever. But in this movie, and I only know this, but because when I watched it today, I tried to keep the volume settings on my TV kind of under control because uh, I'll admit I did watch it with a little bit of a headache. Whoever the sound mixer or sound editor was for this film Surely, I'm, I'm just going to chalk it up to them being under a rush as well, considering what all they had to deal with with the uh, production of this film. Because every jump scare is probably five or six levels of volume higher <laughs> right. than everything. And like the scare itself is not about the loudness of the noise. It's it's about the sudden, you know, it's, it's the startling moment, you know? And, and the, the atmosphere of a horror film should already have you on edge. So it's not like it has to be like, ah, you know, you know, in this giant increase in volume to blow out your eardrums. So that is, um, it's almost more disruptive and annoying than it is scary, um, after a while. And then, um, well, you two, two things. Uh, one, we talked about this and I think probably a lot of the scenes being cut probably do this, but, but when, um, the, the thing about this film, what it reminded me of was, um, a film, uh, another film based off a Michael Crichton novel called sphere. Mm, um, yeah. With, uh, Dustin Hoffman, Samuel Jackson, Sharon Stone. And, and, uh, that instead of in space takes place underwater but they do come upon this sort of spherical looking engine of sorts, Mm -hmm. you know, that is, that is possibly alien, you know, and getting, um, getting exposed to that in that film would then manifest people's fears around them. And so once, you know, people got, once the crew got on the event horizon, they started, I wouldn't say hallucinating per se, but they started seeing things that were very specific to them that were tied to their fear. Um, and what makes that so hard, and I'm, maybe I'm not being entirely uh, even-handed with comparing it to Sphere that way, but but in this film, they seemed all to be very personal, though. Like in Sphere, it's like, I'm afraid of snakes. Well, snakes are going to show up, you know, kind of thing. But here it's like, I was in the war with this guy and he burned to death and I could have done something about it, but I didn't. And I never told anybody. And and like, it's this very personal story, but it's all be, it's all very anecdotal and there's not really enough time for you to care about, about how these traumatic things impact the characters we're following along with. And so when they're confronted with these fears, it's like, yeah, okay. Well, that's the thing that scares you. Like this, this one lady, you know, like she keeps having, she keeps freaking out cause she keeps seeing her son and, and like, I, they, they, 
they try, I, I mean, I said they try to reference it, but again, like, I, I just don't, I didn't really like their, their attempts at execution of trying to build these, these personal relationships for each character with someone who is outside of the movie, basically only for them to show up and be the source of terror for them. Um, you know, it would almost, it almost could have served better for them to be seeing other members of the crew in a different state or something like that, you know, right. and playing upon that. Cause at least you have a little bit of connection to the relationships that way. But, it, and, um, I, I see what they were going for. It's almost, it, it's almost like maybe that would work better in a novel, but not like in a, in a film. And so that really, uh, got me. And then the last thing, <laughs> and, and I can't normally, this is the kind of thing I have to think about for a while before I decide that I'm annoyed with it. But uh, kudos to my wife. We, we she pointed it out, and we immediately were like, "Wait a minute!" So naturally, like these sort of survival space horror things, people start to get picked off one by one, um, which is you know common, and nothing wrong with that in these kinds of movies. Well, there's one character who is sort of driven into madness by whatever's going on with the ship, and he attempts to. Um, eject himself from the airlock uh, of the ship. So he's in this sort of, you know, waiting room place between outer space and the, and the inner part of the ship. And so he hits this button to release the airlock. And then all of a sudden what was controlling and haunting his mind leaves, which actually, I think that might've been the most terrifying moment of the film to me mm -hmm. was allowing him to be lucid, knowing that his death was coming. Um, and that, and I, I think that was actually really well, well executed that scene. But part of the execution of that scene is that as the chamber was decompressing before the door to outer space even opens the veins in his body start to swell and he starts to bleed from the eyes and all this other stuff okay so by the time he actually gets into outer space he's majorly messed up right fast forward to the climax of the film and there's this fight going on in the main chamber between the characters that are left and like freaking infinity war uh of a, a hole gets blown in the side of the ship but guess whose bodies don't explode anybody's like you mean to tell me that there was no and i hate to bring like science into this because it's you know it's a movie and it's a horror movie on top of that but like when you have demonstrated that hu the human body exposed to the decompression of space um will do that to you and then it happens very abruptly with the, you know, one of the windows of the ship being shot out and then people are starting to almost get sucked into space, <laughs> that exposure to the air of space. Like you mean to tell me that nobody's bleeding from the eyes right now or nobody's veins are starting to pop out. Like, like, I, I mean, maybe I didn't notice, but it sure didn't seem like that happened at all. And like, that's a big problem. Like, you know, you either, <laughs> e either that doesn't happen to anybody or that does happen to everybody like See, that's just well my my thought was i'd never really thought of it that way and you, you may be right because i don't know the science of it but so wh when i saw it my my interpretation was um when he's in the chamber you know there's like the and the air is going out 
Like it, it gets down to the point where, you know, there's very little air. And then of course he goes on out into space. But when the rest of the crew is in that other scene, there's still air in there. Space is sucking it out, but it hasn't, it hasn't sucked it all out yet. And so they're okay. still, they're still in like an oxygenated environment, but I, okay. I could be wrong. Like I could be wrong like that. Like maybe, you know, if you were exposed to space, like even before the air got sucked out, it would still have effects on you. I don't know. I mean, there, there's no need to tweet Neil deGrasse Tyson to ask what would really <laughs> happen in this situation. But I still think, you know, not seeming to be any lasting effects whatsoever. I could, I mean, I could even buy that that context buys them a little more time. Yeah. Um, but nothing at all. It, it's, it's It sure seemed like they were in that situation long enough for something to have happened. Well, what, but... what cracked what cracked me up about it was, um, you know, Sam Neill's character gets sucked out into space because, like, he's holding on to like a metal mesh grate, and the grate, the the force of it is actually strong enough to bend the metal grate. And I think it even maybe, I think it might even rip a couple of his fingers off as he's trying to hold on to it, and he gets sucked out into space. Lawrence Fishburne then holds on to a, a rope and is able to pull himself then to a pressurized part of the ship. Lawrence Fishburne has to have the greatest biceps in oh, the yeah. history. Uh, you know, he's got he's got to oh basically gosh. be like a, a robot with biceps to be able not even to just hold on to that for any <laughs> length of time, but to then pull himself up when Sam Neill's character is like holding on to metal that gets bent in half. So that was what that was what cracked me up about that scene. So no, either way, gosh. either 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 way we cut it, there are there are some like fast and furious level uh, <laughs> liber liberties taken with the laws of physics here. Don't mess with Fishburne's family, man. <laughs> oh, oh man. That, it's too bad we didn't get a young Vin Diesel for that. That would have completely, oh, man. That would have completely revamped that film all the way around. He would that. have been a perfect member of that cast. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> oh, my. Well, what other... Uh, let's start the nitpicking. Let's keep the nitpicking going here. What, what else do we got, guys? Oh, man. Well, I think, yeah, like going back to a lot of the... A lot... So in, in things like this, when there are specific characters where they have very real like kind of flashbacks or fears that the ship is preying on and then others just something creepy happens and you don't know why that to me is i don't know so there is one scene with um i don't remember his name but jason isaac's character um who the way he's killed is he's like thrown onto like a medical table and cut open and his inside oh, yeah. eyes are removed and apparently it was going to be worse than that but one of the reasons that happened to him specifically is because he had some sort of medical background. I think like a surgery when he was, you know, there was going to be this backstory with him. And so him being, you know, killed on the state, like it was going to have some sort of personal weight to it. But when in the end, he just, you know, just gets flung and killed, you know, kind of taken out pretty quickly. It just, yeah. it feels more hollow and it feels like it's just there to be another opportunity to scare, which it is creepy and it's gross, but, <laughs> well that does make it does make sense because uh, during the scene where his character gets killed like they show they, the camera the, lingers on the surgery yeah, scar that he mm -hmm. has yeah and i'm like is that supposed to mean something exactly like, there's like all these hints of like deeper meaning 
that I feel like had had they just included at some point, it would have it would have it would have given it given it more resonance than just like a random disp. You know, I'm gonna kick it's you like this way. This, <laughs> it's like this film has Easter eggs hinting at a better movie. Yeah. And then, so that's what that's to me was bothersome because there were some that did have pretty fleshed out backstories, and so to do that to some and so you think, oh well, there's a purpose behind why this ship is doing these things, and then others, nothing. It just, yeah, just I don't know. You could, it just felt like something was being left out in yeah. heaven. And I think too, like, um. Oh gosh, I was I, I just got dis- distracted by a whole nother thought. I was thinking about how how I don't know, how dumb some of the characters are like in their decisions and I mean you always get a little bit of that in horror films too, but oh, I was just going to say like kind of the reveal of the film I still think is this is a plus is is this notion, you know, you it, it becomes sort of revealed and I guess it I guess it is kind of open up to interpretation, but like when they hear the distress call, it's something spoken in Latin, which they um, interpret to say, save me. So they, you know, interpret this distress call, go out there, try to save, save them. And then all this stuff happens. And as things are starting to unravel, um, I think it's Jason Isaac's character who is the one who kind of discovers the Latin phrases in the distress call. And he discovers that he had misheard it. And it's not actually save me, but it's save yourself. And beyond that, it's save yourself from hell. Um, and I, you know, the um, there there are uh, sort of relative interpretations of what actually happens on the ship because they don't they don't really come out and say it specifically. But there is this this evidence for the notion that the ship went to another dimension that the ship have actually gone to hell and come Mm. back uh, with something. And that is what everyone is reckoning with, which you could point out that, you know, everyone's terror is very personal Mm -hmm. in nature, um, which would support that. So uh, that is, that is uh, interesting as well. And, uh, you know, um, again, it's not the best executed uh, storytelling, but I enjoy Fishburne's real devotion to trying to save his crew. You know, he's, he is very committed yes. to that and his character and and um and and wanting to try you know fighting his best to try to bring them all out of it yeah um you know he, he fails at that but he's willing to uh willing to sacrifice himself mm-hmm. to 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 save anybody who can yeah. be um and you know there's there's some some stuff there some some i think there's some theology in there sort of uh in its own weird way <laughs> um but also there i i think i am more impressed by horror films when people people die not because they've done something stupid but maybe because they've just been outsmarted and so like you know it, it is one thing to be terrified on on a ship and, and they're seeing things and stuff but i never quite got behind the female character who kept seeing an image of her child yeah know? right i'm like in in what way like in the in the beginning, when people are just seeing things, I, I get that. But like when they're they're at the moment of like, hey, we are evacuating this ship now, and and then she sees the the image of the child running towards the core of the ship again, and she's like, oh, you know what? Let me drop all of these yeah. CO two canisters and chase my kid around. Like, like what? 
really? Right. Like, <laughs> what yep. is happening? And I don't know. Maybe I'm just being too hard on it, but that uh, that that seems stupid, even even for this film. Um, getting suckered into that, and I am a parent, so it's not like oh, you know, you don't have kids. And no, I do, but <laughs> but I know when they're in space with me or not. Um, yep. So I don't know. That's the, that's the quote for this podcast is, I know when my kids are in space with me or not. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> that's the new title of this episode. I, I know, know when my kids are in space with me. I mean, I guess going to kind of one of the, the themes of the film for, you know, several characters is um, sort of the idea of them ab- abandoning someone that needed them or abandoning mm. someone they loved. Yeah. And so... You see that in Sam Neill's character and Lawrence Fishburne's character. And then, of course, to a lesser extent with um, the mom who, you know, she didn't abandon. She the, the setup for her character was, um, you know, they they give some mm-hmm. exposition at the beginning with Lawrence Fish, Fishburne saying, I'm sorry, I tried to get someone else for it. But, um, you know, we, we couldn't do it on that short of a turnaround. Mm-hmm. So she wasn't going to get to be with her um, special needs child for for christmas um and so with uh, like we said with with lawrence fishburne's character it's that there was a a crew member who um there was an explosion on a a, another ship he was on and it was like fire and zero gravity um you know just kind of snaking its way over things and lawrence fishburne couldn't save him he saved the others couldn't save him and basically he had no choice but to lock the hatch door and leave that guy to, mm. to burn. And then with Sam Neill's character, it's, it, it's really interesting with Sam Neill's character because it's that he let his work on the gravity drive consume him so much that he neglected his wife and his, his wife, uh, it looks like committed suicide. Um, mm-hmm. and so he's got this guilt mm-hmm. from, from that, um, and, you know, but it, it, it gets, you know, it doesn't really get redeemed. It gets sort of turned on itself where, mm. you know, he goes back to the ship and he still can't pull away from that. And, and you can't oh. really tell like how much of it is, you know, his original obsession there. And then how much of it, obviously towards the end, like, it seems like something is, controlling him or at least as you know it's all like twisted and kind of broken his mind because he's completely gone over the edge um but it seems like maybe it's a a mix there of like you know even at the end he can't you know pull away from it he's still so obsessed with it um but it kind of mixes the two together because it it keeps showing him his wife on the ship so it's Mm -hmm. kind of like giving him both you know it's kind Mm -hmm. of like you know, and I think there's a scene where the the whatever's appearing to him as his wife or um, whatever tells him that, you know, he he's there to stay or he has to stay or something like that. So it's kind of blending those two together uh, mm-hmm. between his guilt and his original obsession with the ship. And then um, also like this, you know, manifestation of his wife to kind of just really drive him over the yeah. edge. But. But the theme of, um, you know, having people that you've let down or um, neglected or abandoned is is really 
heavy in that film. And, you know, one thing that's interesting, really one of the most terrifying things to like, I I didn't, I I guess I remembered it or, but, um, or maybe I'd kind of forgotten it, but, you know, like Lawrence Fishburne's character, you know, he saves the others by blowing up the middle of the ship. Um, And a lot of times you see, something like that in a film where someone will sacrifice themselves to save the others. Mm-hmm. But, you know, like he, de- he doesn't get blown up. Like he does get sucked into th- they, they activate Sam Neill's character. Weir activates the gravity drive. And so it doesn't blow up that part of the ship. It just blows up the connectors. And so he ultimately did get sucked into that hell dimension. Like he didn't mm-hmm. just sacrifice himself in terms of, mm-hmm. um, you know, killing, you know, dying, like he yeah. actually went to hell for, um, you know, uh, his, his, uh, crew members. Mm. Well, you know, Man. for, for, for all the warts this film has, there is some real Christology in that. Um, you know, yeah. Yeah. um, the, the fact of, of going through literally, you know, literally going to hell for, for, you know, potentially undeserving people, but nevertheless, because of your, you know, love for them. And I think, um, you know, one, um, uh, edifying, isn't really the word, but, but one, uh, you know, really helpful thing, uh, if we have listeners who are not like really not into horror films or anything like that, cause maybe they're a little bit of a turnoff. Uh, one thing that I appreciate about good horror films as a genre is um, they have a lot to say about very specific fears we have and emotions we have and how they can control us and and how we respond to them and stuff. Um, And I think Jared brings up a really good point about, you know, there's a lot about here about the guilt around abandonment um, and the guilt around failing people. Um, And... Uh, you know, everybody has a, has a little bit of that here. Um, and they even, you know, again, I think that scene where, um, I'm trying to look into the, to the actual plot. Um, uh, Justin is the, the kid who is, uh, you know, stuck in the decompression state there about halfway through. And, um, that probably, again, probably was one of the more emotional scenes from, because you can see in this moment, like when he becomes, lucid again and realizes what's about to happen you can see on the face of uh you know the woman and one of the other crew members like you know that they are about to experience that sort of failure again like right in front of them because they're because uh the way the ship operates once they once everybody realizes what's happening and he realizes what's happening too it's too late for him to to reopen the door and bring him back in and there is that there's a real fear between knowing that there is a there is a uh, tragic logical conclusion that's impending that you can't stop. Um, You know, they do, um, they do kind of wing their way around, you know, sort of saving him uh, not without a cost. I mean, Mm -hmm. but, um, but still uh, I think that's something that horror can do really well when it tries is use these really strange um, examples and, and, uh, analogies and allegories to really exploit what our fear is and what does that say about our fear? How do we respond to it? How do we survive it? How do we overcome it? You know? And, um, I think there's something to be said there. You know, we talked about sort of the 
the Christ reference of what Fishburne does in his sacrifice, but at the same time, he is, um, he he's really the only one who will who is confronting his failure mm-hmm. and and willing to be accountable for it. Um, so in a way, even though he probably has the worst fate out of anybody in a strange way, he's also the most victorious because, because the choices he makes, um, to, to, to physically fight, you know, that the manifestation of that guy who is that, who he let down and, and fighting what's left of Weir, um, he he does kind of resign himself to being sent to this hell dimension, but that's not what he's concerned with. He's concerned with saving his people, and he is successful in doing that by choosing to embrace that failure and and confronting it and trying to overcome it by facing it head on. You know, what if they just like what? What if it's not like you know just a guarantee that 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 drive is going to go to that hell dimension every time. Like, like what if it just like went to a cartoon dimension sort of thing, you know? And then yeah. all of a sudden we're all of a sudden we're it's just like, what, what, what? The right. yeah. And, yeah. And then it's sort of, it's sort of this like odd couple. It's sort of then this sort of odd couple series between the two of them because yeah. they're both just out of place, but all they have is each other. So that's, yeah. that's going to be like what I imagine and rather than this depressing ending there. They they end oh, up in man. Toontown. They're like, you know, uh, um, yeah. you know, Eddie Eddie and Roger Rabbit handcuffed together, you know, walking around. That's, right, exactly. That's just they around, yeah. yeah. Or maybe they went to heaven, you know? I mean this time they're yeah. so random at this point. Yeah. And they're all reunited <laughs> together. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I should I should say I don't think That's that great. ship intended to go to hell in the first place. So it's not really right. the the logic of that film wouldn't tell you that it goes to the same dimension twice. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, so yeah, who knows where he ends. Maybe maybe they end up in the MCU, you know, because I mean they're crossing all these other dimensions. They show up in WandaVision <laughs> by the end of the year, you know. It's just uh yeah. all kinds of weird stuff. So so here's the uh I, I don't know if I knew this or had forgotten this. I, I, I don't know. Again, like the year 2020 seems like, you know, about the same length of time as when I saw Event Horizon the first time. Yeah. Actually, 2020 is a pretty good allegory for... Uh, for, for <laughs> Save yourself Horizon. from hell. Yeah. yeah. Oh, my goodness. Um, they but... traveled to 2020. Wait, That's no, it was. was. It was twenty. It was twenty twenty. It wasn't. Yeah, no, yeah. Right. <laughs> my bad. Save yourself. <laughs> they brought. They brought twenty twenty. <laughs> they brought back to ninety seven. <laughs> oh gosh, we're all Michael 20... Scott in the in the dinner party episode. Oh, you know? we're just oh. like, oh, I'm burning and I'm in hell. You're the devil. <laughs> yeah, um, but so here's the, here's the cool thing about this. So. You know, again, that was my major takeaway. And watching this again was like, this was not nearly as scary or as good as I thought it was. Um, But I really loved the premise. In fact, like Mm -hmm. when I went back to school to get a a digital media film and digital media degree, I like one of the the scripts that I kind of wrote was was basically like a take on Event Horizon. So Mm -hmm. that's that's how much the concept um, interests me. But um, I had forgotten this. Amazon is developing 
an event horizon series yes or apparently i guess next year i don't know how covid has affected oh wow um that well, it but, was announced in 2019 i think right right it was announced like uh, announced like august september i think of 2019 um and i don't know if it was originally intended for 2020 or what but the latest thing i saw was maybe from back in june or july saying that it basically sounded like it was still on track and for 2021. Uh, so um, wow. that is, I, I really like that because I think there's tons of potential with the premise. Um, you know, Amazon has produced some good stuff. We've seen what they've done with uh, the boys and how they can take some yeah. really graphic uh, material and they won't be editing down the yeah the, the exactly. disgusting visuals that's for sure yeah. I, i'm i'm sure yeah right right so <laughs> so so this isn't just like a discussion about like this little weird you know cult hit from 1997 like it's now got you know a, a future ramifications yeah, yeah. No, that i'm glad you brought that up jared because i was wanting to uh um, bring that up before we before we finished uh, tonight, anyways, because um, you know a lot of the drawbacks you know we're talking about uh, of this film. You know, execution was one thing. Part of that was due to probably interference and timetables and stuff. And then mm -hmm. also, you probably could make an argument about the hands of the filmmaker as well. Now, I don't know um, Adam. What's his name? Adam Weingard or something. Uh, was the director that they had originally that they've initially mentioned might be um, the one helming it. And uh, I don't really know much about his work, even looking at things. Now, I do know he did a film in 2014 called The Guest, which was um, which I heard got got some good some good press uh, on it. Uh, Dan Stevens was in that. Um, and then I'm trying to see what else there is. Um Let's see. Yeah. Yeah. That, that's, that's probably the biggest one I noticed, but nevertheless, um, I think a lot of the fundamental issues that don't really flesh out well to the film will be addressed by it being a series, um, right. and be, and being on a streaming service because, uh, especially one with Amazon. So if they particularly get behind this, um, man, think about what Amazon's going to be doing in the next couple of years. They're doing that Middle Earth series, I think, still, and they're doing yeah, yeah. a couple of other like really big property things. It's hard to believe that that's still going to continue to grow. But yeah. um, you know, you've got um, like Jared brings up a great great example with the boys. So I think you know just um, the, being able to expand out the storytelling to to be able to relate more to the characters, which will then have you relate more to their fear. Um, what will be could be remedied uh in this kind of a uh and this sort of content um you know editing probably won't be as big of an issue as well like we like we said so i think um i think this is probably the best uh scenario for them because again there's still uh i think there's definitely still some some juice left in this uh this premise you know yeah. um i don't think it's been fully fleshed out at all yeah i and i and i wonder what the series is actually going to look like and like how many, you know, creative liberties they'll take or, or like, will this just sort of be, um, you know, sort of an inspiration for what they do with like differently with a series? Because 
when I think about a series based on this, you know, it almost kind of makes me go back to Lost or something where mm-hmm. I think I think when you and I both heard the premise, we're like, oh, OK, it's it's a series basically like a series version of Castaway. Yeah. How, how are they really is this going to be like a mini series? I could see it working as a mini series, but how is this really going to you know work as uh, anything more than that? So um, I'm curious to see if if they actually do just a, like a series version of the movie or if they try to you know make it into you know something more of like um an expanded universe sort mm. of thing. well you know i think you could do um i don't want to get too much i mentioned lost in space as a joke earlier but you don't want to get too much like that uh, but but you have the ability to have this option of exploring other dimensions um, I don't know if that would be really episodic or if they wanted to like cliffhang the end of the first season and then have the option of someone maybe still being stuck on the ship or something and mm-hmm. and uh, getting into another place to branch out into a follow-up season could be possible. Um, yeah, I'm not sure how that would play out. They they certainly have options to to go with. I mean, I think even even a retread of the film itself would still would still work out well yeah. in this format better than just a film. Yeah, if they could just if they could just fix the jump scare issue, I'd, I'd appreciate that a little <laughs> bit. So I don't blow my TV speakers out. But you know, other yeah. than that, well, sure. uh, yeah. <laughs> so. Um, uh, any any other um, lingering thoughts or uh, well wishes or wistful things to be different uh, about Event Horizon, gentlemen? I think that's it for me, except but I like what Jared said. I feel like the premise was really strong, and I feel like it. There's a lot of potential there that I feel like didn't um, didn't quite make it. So yeah, the now that you guys are sharing about a TV show that. That's uh, encouraging and intriguing. I really hope they do that well. Yeah, um, I, I think that's my my main takeaway from this is I I'll I really hope this you know delivers. I mean I know um, anytime some I don't know what stage of production it's now in now if they've shot anything. So sometimes you get pilots and they they don't work out and they don't get picked up. So I hope I hope this does. Um, because that's kind of my, I guess, main thing going forward. Um, otherwise it's just this sort of little cult hit that is a mix of great premise and then kind of, like you said, cheesy 90 tropes, cheesy (laughs) 90s tropes, Mm -hmm. um, at the end. Like I kind of like going back again was kind of chuckling at some of the action scenes, you know, where, um, they just mixed in stuff that seemed like it was from a different film. Mm-hmm. Um, but they just had to like work in nineties over the top action <laughs> scenes, you know, like it almost felt like, like I could have easily seen instead of this being Lawrence Fishburne, I could have easily seen this being Nicholas cage. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. yeah. And, um, save yourself from hell. <laughs> <laughs> Right, right. Brings a whole new meaning to Con Air there. Oh, <laughs> yeah, for sure. Con Space. Yes. Part two. Um, so, 
yeah, I, I still the, the, the film kind of like holds a special place in my heart, uh, you know, as which is kind of unique for a film that bad. But uh, there's there's just so mm-hmm. much around it. But I really hope that we get uh, I hope I hope the series is sort of the Luke Skywalker to the movies, Darth Vader, like the like the the Amazon series redeems Event Horizon. <laughs> yeah. I'm for that. Yeah. Um, I was about to make a joke, a really lengthy, complicated joke about handing the movie to the series and then the series just throws it over the back of his shoulder and stuff. But um, <clears throat> but maybe that's necessary. Who knows? What if what uh, if the series again, like there's so many ways that the series could go. Like what if the series is the ship reappearing again, even farther in the future? And then and then through, you know, some misguided corporate effort to like haul it back to Earth. Yeah. Yes. um, To, you know, who knows? Who knows? Yeah, that would be. Yeah, no, that could be really that could be intriguing. Yeah. Well, I'm I'm already way more interested in the possibility of a series uh, than, than what we film for sure. Uh, you know, I think there there is a there there is some interesting stuff to mine from it. Um, if you are interested in Event Horizon, it is certainly in that weird sweet spot of age for its film that it would be a cheap rental um, for sure on streaming. But uh, if you have access to the independent film channel, the the IFC app, um, actually, you know what? By the time this airs, it won't be on there anymore. So sorry. Uh, everybody, but uh, anyways, I'm sure you can find it really cheap to rent uh, on Amazon Prime. At the time of this taping, it had like maybe a week left of mm. airtime on the uh, IFC app. So, um, but one neat, one neat little trick though, in case anybody uh, has never learned this, but um, so like I, uh, I use an Amazon Fire TV stick for most of my film consumption. And uh, if you search for a title, there's usually like a more ways to watch button and it will list if it's if it's available on some kind of app to watch, it will list the apps uh, that you can choose from to, to actually watch it. And if they're subscription required and stuff like that. So sometimes there's with, with the plethora of streaming apps available now, uh, you know, you if you don't need to spend money on something or if it's or if you're already paying money for it and don't even realize it, you know, <laughs> Um it's, it's good to take advantage of it that way. But yeah, so uh, that's Event Horizon, uh, 1997. Uh, not super well received by the public, but uh, seemed to find new life in more ways than one. Uh, not only as a, as a cult hit, but possibly new life as a series may be coming soon to Amazon. It would be fun if that does come through. Maybe we could circle back around and do a, uh, yeah. do a two yeah. TV series review of this and maybe see how it stacks up. Yeah. Um, I would be interested to see if they manage even for a cameo to bring back anybody from the original uh, mm. cast. Cause they did have two survivors uh, show up. Of course, who knows how old they are now? I guess they're all, you know, 20 years older at least. Um, so who knows? But um, yeah. So thanks for uh, joining us tonight, everybody on, on uh, save yourself from 1997. And um <laughs> Join us again next week for uh, another trip uh, into the horror 
genre uh, with another selection. And uh, if you have any more suggestions, selections you'd like to hear us talk about in the future, feel free to let us know. Uh, We're on Instagram at Night Cheese with Stephen and Tim, uh, on Twitter at Pod Night Cheese, and uh, also Night Cheese Podcast with Stephen and Tim on Facebook as well. And um, if you have any, if you have any thoughts on Event Horizon or would like to contribute to the conversation, feel free to reach out to us and let us know as well. But uh, until next time, uh, save yourself from hell and keep working on your night cheese. And I am a parent, so it's not like, oh, you know, you don't have kids. No, I do, but <laughs> but I know when they're in space with me or not. <laughs> <laughs>